0: Well, if you have your Bibles, take and turn with me this morning to the gospel of John chapter 15, John chapter 15. A couple years ago, uh, I caught my midwinter cold illness, didn't really know what it was. And so I went to the doctor and he came in, had the fever, the chills and all that sort of stuff. And so the doctor looked me over and said, well, did you get a flu shot? I said, no, I didn't get a flu shot. He said, we want to test you for the flu. Ooh. Now, have any of you been tested for the flu recently? Okay, well, this was, uh, as the doctor was telling me that his assistant was going to come in and test me for the flu, he said, now, I'm going to tell you, this may hurt a little bit. And, man, that was like the understatement of the decade. They come in with this cotton swab, which is an extra-long Q-tip, basically, and they put it up your nostril for a little bit and twirl it around and then pull it out and then run and test that. And so she finished with that thing and my eyes are watering, man, it hurt so bad. I asked her, I said, were you looking for mucus or brain tissue with that thing to test for the flu? Oh, it hurts so bad. And when he came back in and told me it was the flu, I was like, yeah, that was quite the understatement that this may sting a little bit. Well as we come to John chapter fifteen this morning. this is a very familiar uh, if you've been around church very much, a very familiar passage of scripture it's also a very powerful and important passage of scripture. Uh, but I must warn you that we're going to tackle some pretty personal, deeply personal, and possibly convicting truths as a result of our study through this chapter in john's Gospel. So in short, this may hurt a little all right but you see that's what god 's Word does as we look into god's word and we we measure ourselves against the truths that are here, God begins the work of sanctifying us. And sanctifying is a Bible word that simply means to make us more like Jesus. And I heard a sculptor one time talk about sculpting statues and people asking, well, how do you, you know, make it look like what do you see in your mind? He said, well, I just see the picture in my mind and then I chisel away everything that doesn't look like that picture. Well wow, that's a very uh, powerful truth related to looking like Jesus. What the Bible does is the Bible chips away, helps us get rid of anything in our life that doesn't look like and reflect Jesus, and that's exactly what happens in John chapter 15. As we begin the chapter, Jesus delivers the last of what we've been looking at as our seven I am statements through the gospel. On six other occasions, Jesus has said, I am. And then he kind of gives a description. It's an item, it's an object, it's an idea of something that people would be familiar with. And Jesus says, I am this. And he teaches spiritual truth from that lesson or from that object or that idea. He has already said through John's gospel, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate, I am the good shepherd. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then in John 14, we saw him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So here in John 15, verse one, he adds this. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So immediately we get two parts of a single picture. The picture of a vine And a vine dresser. So let's take them in reverse order. What is a vine dresser? Well, in essence, a vine dresser is a farmer. The word used for vine dresser here is a common term for a farmer. Uh, And his particular fruit or, or crop is grapes, which grow on a vine, thus the term vine dresser. But make no mistake about it that the vine dresser is at his heart a farmer. So, I want to ask you a question. What is the goal? What is the aim to which a farmer works? For example, a sports team, if they achieve the ultimate success, the the pinnacle of a successful season, everything came together, then a sports team wins a championship. So, what is the, the pinnacle of success? What is the outcome for which the farmer works and strives and gives his effort? Would we all agree that it's a harvest? Yeah, a farmer wants a harvest when all is said and done. A farmer doesn't look back on a growing season where there was drought or disease or or insect manifestations that destroyed his crop uh, and, and losing everything and say, you know what? I lost everything this year, but man, I had a great start. You know, I tilled well, I planted good, I fertilized. Yeah, I lost everything, but boy, I had a great start to the season. No, I mean, a farmer doesn't say that, does he? I mean, he wants some harvest. Even if it's minimal because of other things, a farmer looks for a harvest. So think about this idea. God is the heavenly vine dresser. So what do we think God's desire is? Is not his desire a harvest for fruit to be born and produced? Some kind of fruit? Now, we'll look and talk about what that means, but That's God's desire as the heavenly vine dresser is that there is a harvest, that fruit is produced. Well, the other part of this picture is where Jesus said, I am the true vine. So the same question, if things are normal and it functions according to its design, what is the natural outcome or end result of a good vine? Fruit. In this instance, grapes, they're kind of referencing the idea of a a vineyard with grapes and a vine dresser. So, uh, Jesus saying that he's the true vine, the end result is going, desire is for fruit to be produced. And here it's referencing grapes that, that would be produced. And so, Jesus said he is the true vine. So, we can deduce from that, if Jesus is saying he's the true vine, that means there's also what? A false vine a not true vine. I'm the true vine indicating that there can be false vines as well. And so Jesus is taking this picture of a grapevine being tended by a careful, caring dry vine dresser to teach spiritual truths about bearing fruit of and for the gospel the fruit of the gospel in the lives of believers, fruit for the gospel in seeing more people give their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ. So the question I think then becomes, well, how does that happen? Well, Jesus tells us as he speaks about the vine dresser and him being the true vine. He says in verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now look down at verse 6 because I want to focus on the first part of this vine dresser's work this morning. And we'll pick up the pruning part next week. But in verse 6, Jesus adds to this casting and taking away of, of unfruitful branches. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches that are ga- and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. Now, we're going to look at this passage for about the next 4 weeks and we're going to look at it from a couple of different angles, but this morning I want to focus on Jesus teaching about the dead branches being taken away, gathered together, withering, and then ultimately and finally being burned. And we need to understand that when Jesus uses this language as he does in several other places, Jesus is referencing salvation. And true eternal long lasting salvation because the idea of the gathering together and being cast aside and being burned is a reference that Jesus often used to paint a picture of hell. Where there's suffering and there's a a unquenching, a never-ending fire uh, that that burns and destroys and torments individuals for all of eternity. So this imagery here is that of eternal destination and being separated from God. So here's the principle that I want to talk about this morning that we see from this passage and in other places. Quote-unquote believers who don't produce spiritual fruit aren't true believers. Quote unquote, "...believers who don't produce spiritual fruit aren't true believers." And this isn't the only place that this is taught in the New Testament. It's it's underscored and reemphasized in several places in several different ways. Take, for example, the parable of the seeds in Matthew 13. Jesus tells the story of a farmer going out to sow seed and he took and he threw some and it fell on the path and the birds came and it it took it away. Well, that seed is the gospel. And so Satan snatches it away so that people can't respond. But then Jesus speaks of two types of seeds, seed that falls in shallow soil, shallow, rocky soil, And when it begins, it springs up quickly, but it can't get roots because of the rocks. And so that plant dies. Other in shallow soil, it springs up, but it says that, that thorns grow up around it. And those thorns choke out that plant that's growing. So the question from this parable is this. Were those plants from the story that that respond to the gospel for a short time but then fall away, were those saved or unsaved people that Jesus is referencing in that parable? Well, if we say that they're saved people, we're saying, well, they were saved because they responded to the gospel, but then they fell away because they didn't have roots in the rocky soil or they were choked out by the thorns in the, the, the thorn soil. And so, therefore, we're saying that those individuals lost their salvation But the answer is that they were unsaved people who looked as though they were saved people for a season or for a period of time. The parable of the wheat and the weeds is another place where Jesus underscores this truth from a different farming angle. He said a farmer goes out and a farmer sows wheat in his field. Well at night an enemy came and an enemy sowed weeds in with that wheat. Well, the farmer and his workers didn't know until the two began to grow and got a little further along in their maturation process. And then he and the workers went, oh, no. An enemy came and sowed weeds into the field in among the wheat. And the workers came and said, should we go and pull the weeds out? And the farmer said, no, because by doing that, you're going to disrupt the wheat that is growing. Let the two grow together. And then at the end, we will cut them both and we'll separate the wheat from the weeds, and the weeds will be set aside, cast and burned, and we will harvest then and produce the the fruit from the wheat. And so, the the truth here is that there are weeds, unsaved unbelievers, growing alongside wheat, true believers within the church, and the difference is only seen by the, the maturation process and the fruit that is or isn't produced. But even then, the reminder from this truth is that Jesus is the one who on the day when people stand before him will be the one to determine true salvation from false salvation. That is Jesus' determination to make and no one else. But even in that day, Jesus speaks and references the truth of this principle, that there are false believers who, who, who profess and claim to be and outwardly look to be true believers, but who aren't. In Matthew 7, Jesus says that people will stand before him on their day of judgment. And some will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we do signs and wonders and do works? And Jesus will say to those individuals, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. I knew you not. So even in that time, Jesus saying people who who apparently gave a season of what looked outwardly to be a season of fruitfulness but didn't continue through. Jesus said, you're not my true followers. Other places in scripture, Matthew 13, Jesus uh, references this as bad fish being thrown out. In Luke chapter 13, he speaks of being left standing outside when the head of the household shuts the door. In Matthew 25, he speaks of the foolish virgins who were shut out from the wedding feast and the useless slaves who bury their master's talents in the ground. And so this idea that Jesus teaches and is underscored elsewhere uh, in his ministry and throughout the New Testament is that there can be those who profess to be believers who Aren't true believers. They're not connected to the true vine of Jesus Christ, and they don't produce spiritual fruit. But the Bible also speaks of not persevering in our faith as another evidence of not being connected to the true vine. In Hebrews 3, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. So you see, the heart was never transformed. He calls it an evil, unbelieving heart. He says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin does this work of hardening our heart. It says, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we hold that profession of faith and salvation in Jesus Christ to the end, we evidence that we were truly saved in the beginning. James speaks of our faith that doesn't have works, and he calls that faith what? Dead. It's dead faith. It's not an alive faith, it's a dead faith, and Jesus came to offer us life. So if we claim a faith that doesn't have work and produce spiritual fruit, then James says that it's dead fruit. Well, let me say for the record as we kind of turn the corner and shift gears here a little bit that I do believe because Jesus taught in John 6 and John 10 that when a person is truly and genuinely saved, they cannot lose that salvation. Jesus said he holds us in his hands and no one can snatch us or take us away from him. The Bible speaks of being sealed with the Holy Spirit and our salvation is kept through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives until we are redeemed and enter into eternity with Christ. So the issue isn't losing salvation uh, if we had it, but the issue and the question really comes down to, is our salvation genuine or authentic to begin with? And this passage in John 15 teaches us that there are two kinds of faith presented in the Bible, a true, genuine, saving faith, and then a phony or a false faith. And so how do we tell the difference? Well, we've just seen two marks. True saving faith produces spiritual fruit. Jesus talked about the vine and the branches, and we're going to look in the next few weeks about Jesus speaking even more about bearing fruit and bearing much fruit for his Father's glory. Also, true faith perseveres to the end. But, uh, and so we see these things that, uh, that give evidence of our salvation. So if faith and fruitfulness persevere to the end, then our faith was real. But if it fails, then it wasn't that a person lost it. that was never true and genuine to begin with. So when we come back to John 15, the question becomes, okay, what is Jesus trying to say to us? What is our takeaway from these verses, John 15, verses 1 and 2, and verse 6? What's our takeaway this morning? Well, I told you it's very personal And it's very deep within the heart and spirit of every person. We should prayerfully evaluate whether or not we're producing true spiritual fruit in our lives. Jesus' teaching here should cause us to look deeply within ourselves through the power of the Holy Spirit and say, God, am I producing true spiritual fruit of salvation for you and your kingdom?" And if through the prompting of the Holy Spirit and through the truths that the Holy Spirit reveals from his word, we realize that we're not producing the spiritual fruit that God has called us to or that God desires for us to produce, then one of two things needs to happen in our response to that. First of all, it, it may simply be a pruning issue where there are things in our life that God wants to reveal that we would give up that we would allow him to remove, to take away from us so we can produce more fruit for him and his kingdom, more spiritual fruit of the gospel in our life, more spiritual fruit for the gospel in sharing the good news of Christ with other people. But if the Holy Spirit reveals and works in our lives that we're not producing spiritual fruit, it may be a situation where God is trying to reveal and help us understand that we have believed in a false faith, We're connected to a false or a phony vine, and we need to give ourselves to Jesus Christ and truly, genuinely be saved, regardless of what our past or our history may have looked like. Because we don't want to stand before God one day and say, well, Lord, I did these things, and I did these things, and I did these things, only to hear him say, depart from me, I knew you not. And I firmly believe that the Holy Spirit, as we submit to him and as we give ourselves to the study of God's word, he will reveal the status of our true salvation. I want to give you uh, here in a few minutes a a way to examine that and to search our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, as it relates to our status in salvation. But I think here's the question that, that we come to. If we say, okay, we know the vine dresser. God is looking for spiritual fruit to be produced in our lives. We basically want to know, what is, that, what is that fruit? What is God, the heavenly vine dresser, looking for in our lives, right? Well, we would want to know that so we can rightly evaluate whether or not we're producing this fruit in our lives. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Pretty familiar uh, passage of Scripture for many of you. Uh, the book of Galatians chapter 5. And I'll tell you as you're making your way to that book that it's not just as easy as far as measuring spiritual fruit in our lives as an ABC checklist, you know, or a list of behaviors. If you're doing this or not doing this, that's what we as human beings tend toward. Hey, give me the list. Give me the thing so I can check it off so I can do it and, and just make sure I'm secure in that area. God doesn't work with us in a system of rules and regulations of moral behaviors or immoral behaviors, because here's the thing, that would be easy for us to do, and that works to a works salvation where we think we earn or deserve salvation by what we do or by what we don't do. And God's desire is for us to know him in a personal relationship. That's why Jesus came and died and will tell us as we get into John 15 that we are to abide In him, that sense of abiding, of having a relationship and continually being in communion, in fellowship with Christ. Jesus tells us that when you abide in me, that's when you will produce fruit. And he says, if you don't abide in me, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so it's not about a list of rules and regulations that we follow or a list of behaviors that we do or don't do. That's not how we assess spiritual fruit. We assess spiritual fruit out of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And certain characteristics or traits or qualities are evidenced in ever-increasing measures in our lives. And in Galatians 5, Paul writes and gives us a, a very good picture here of the qualities and the traits and the things that should be evidenced in ever-increasing measure in the lives of believers. He says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, against such things, there is no law. I mean, Paul's basically saying, hey, there's no limit to these things. I mean, somebody's not gonna, when you love on them, say, hey, stop loving on me, I'm good here. You know, that there's no limit to ever increasing measures of love that come from our relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's the list of the fruit of the Spirit that we can measure our lives again and say, are these things in my life in ever-increasing measures? But if you back up a few verses, Paul actually highlights a list of things that should be being list of things we should be getting rid of in our lives as well. These are what he calls the fruit of the flesh. These are the works of the flesh that come out uh, in our lives when we're not truly of the true vine of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Notice the word works and evident there. We've talked about a faith without works is dead. And so Paul says the the works of the flesh. uh, So these actions, these activities are evident. They are observable. He says there's sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. And idolatry is not just setting up, you know, little wooden idols and bowing down to that. It's placing anything, any pursuit, any relationship ahead of our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I tell couples in their premarital counseling and and reference in their wedding ceremony that the most important relationship they will have in life is not their relationship to their spouse, it's their relationship with Jesus Christ because that relationship fuels and impacts every other relationship. And so we're not to have any relationship or any uh, pursuit that is more important to us than our relationship with God. Paul continues on in verse 20, speaks of sorcery, of enmity. This is animosity. Uh, it's, It's hatred, it's ill will toward other people. It can be toward people who have done something to you. And so we have enmity, we have animosity, hatred toward those individuals because of what they have done to us. But at some instances, we carry this enmity, this animosity toward people who have not offended us. Maybe they're from a different ethnicity. Maybe they have a different skin color. Uh, Whatever the list of things may be, there are a lot of things for which we harbor resentment and animosity and anger toward individuals and people who really have not offended us in any way. And so Paul says we shouldn't have this enmity, this animosity in our lives. He speaks of strife, of jealousy, of fits of anger, of rivalries, of dissensions, divisions. He goes on to say envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul speaks of these works of the flesh, and then in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and we just read that. So we have these contrasting lists of, of characteristics, traits, attitudes, and behaviors that we ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in our lives, and the Holy Spirit may say, hey, you got a few of these works of the flesh on here. Let's prune these things out. You are in the true vine. You are one of my children, but we're still struggling with these things, and these things are keeping you from producing the fruit of the the Spirit. And God does that work of pruning that we will talk about some next week. I want you to flip uh, over a couple of books to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. It's a great book uh, to read through, really ties into uh, this idea of producing the fruit of the Spirit and what that looks like. Paul spends a great deal of time in this book uh, talking of these things. In verse 10, Paul says, uh, he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Note that bearing fruit he talks of in every good work and the increasing in the knowledge of God. That as we increase in our knowledge of God, what happens as a result? God does more pruning in our life of things, but he also produces more fruit. And so they're very closely tied together. Flip over to Colossians chapter three. This, there's so much in here. I'm not gonna have time to read all of this this morning, but I want to just highlight uh, kind of how Paul sets this up. Verse uh, Chapter three, verse one, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so the pursuit, the desires of our hearts, setting our mind on godly things, on things of Scripture as we study this and as God reveals things, setting our mind on those things, not on things of this world. Verse 12 then, if you look at verses 5 through 11, Paul goes through again some of the evidences of the flesh. But verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Verse 14, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body And be thankful. So, so many of these things that we've been looking at, this fruit of knowing Jesus Christ and abiding in Him that is produced in our lives, these are things that we ask the Holy Spirit to say, Are these things evident in my life, or is it the works of the flesh? Uh, Looking on down in verse. 17, Colossians 3:17. Paul basically sums everything up here and says, "And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." So John 15 teaches that we, if we're in the true vine, we bear fruit, and if we're not producing fruit, spiritual fruit, of the gospel and for the gospel then the question is, is there some pruning that needs to take place in our life through the power and the, the teaching of the, the heavenly vine dresser? Or is there a deeper issue of not having true and genuine salvation that we need to address? And church, that is the, the primary issue. We need to know that we are rightly and securely in Jesus Christ because everything else about us flows from that relationship with him. If we don't address that issue, then we're simply putting band-aids on the other works of the flesh that will be evident in our lives. Well, we're not done with this topic because as Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, but I do want to move on for this morning because we're going to pick back up in some other areas. And I want to address one potential misapplication of what I've been talking about this morning. Because as we talk about producing fruit and spiritual fruit for Christ and not having works of the flesh, it's very easy for our minds to slip into this idea of thinking that I'm saying that we need to be perfect. Because if there's sin evidenced in our life and we know that we struggle with sin, then it feels like, well, we're not bearing good fruit. Therefore, we're indicating that we're not genuinely and truly saved. But that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. What I'm saying is that true believers regularly and consistently and until their death produce spiritual fruit that's in accordance and in line with the character and the nature and the teachings of Jesus Christ himself. In short, they evidence themselves as disciples because of their godly behavior and their persistence in the faith. But if an individual doesn't produce godly fruit or or falls away from Christ in their obedience to him, regardless of how faithful they may have been at some point in the past, they're evidencing that they weren't true believers to begin with. It's what the Bible teaches. Well, how do we know? Well, I think here's the test. I think here's a standard that God sets before us. This is a fruit that is produced in our lives that reveals where we stand in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we're connected to the true vine or if we're not connected to the true vine. This spring, uh, I set out to set up a freshwater fish tank. Several years ago, I came across a big 55-gallon aquarium tank that's been sitting in storage for several years collecting dust. And this spring, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to get that tank out and try and set it up this year. Now, uh, a while back, back when we lived in Kentucky, so it's been probably 10, 15 years ago, I had a 10-gallon tank that I set up. And just let me say, I was not the fish whisperer all right and in trying to do this tank I, I was more like a fish Hitler I guess I mean I, I wiped out entire schools of fish because I thought how how difficult can an aquarium be you put water in it you put fish in it and there you go you know you feed them every day and so uh, I was just like coming in every day and they're floating at the top or they're cannibalizing each other you know they're, they're eating the dead ones and stuff I was like what is wrong that that this is so hard so I gave way to my inter nerd this spring and I read a book about freshwater aquariums so I highlighted and I mate made notes and I was like, as I was reading through, I was like, oh, that's why I killed all those fish. Oh yeah, I didn't do that before, you know? So I kind of saw some of that stuff. But I I read through, I mean, I made an Excel sheet. I mean, it's, Michelle, he's like, you did not do that. I was like, oh, yes, I did. I made an Excel sheet about fish and their water temperatures and who they were good, you know, tank mates with and stuff. Uh, So I set this fish tank up and it's it's really doing well. It's been about two months now and uh, I've been very pleased with the result of it. But one of the things that I do on a weekly basis is I test the ammonia levels the nitrate the nitrite the alkalinity the hardness of my water you're going all that yeah exactly all that's involved in a fish aquarium and I do that with a test strip I take this little strip and I dip it down in water and it's got chemicals on it that test these things and I measure my strip according to the normal colors on my label and if everything's normal and good and healthy and safe for my fish the colors match But if I look and my red square is turning purple, I know something's wrong in this area. And I need to treat my water, you know, do a water change, put something in to try and get that back into the normal range. Well, God has given us a sort of test strip in our lives as a very strong indicator of our salvation in him, whether or not it's true salvation. And it's kind of referenced as a fruit. It's called the fruit of repentance. And here's the question related to the fruit of repentance. When God convicts us of sin, how do we respond to that conviction? We're never going to be perfect in our salvation in Jesus Christ. But thankfully, God never quits on us. He is, according to John 15, the heavenly vine dresser who is always in his vineyard, tending to his vines, assessing his vines, working, tilling the soil, cutting away dead branches, pruning healthy branches so that they will be even healthier and stronger and more fruitful. You see, God never quits working on us to help transform us to chip away things in our lives that don't reflect and honor Jesus Christ so that our lives will more closely honor Christ. So the question is how do we respond when God convicts us of sin? That is such an important indicator of whether or not we have true salvation in Jesus Christ or if we've believed in and following a, a false vine of humanism of works or 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 of any other kind of false vine of the many that are out there. And, and here's kind of an assessment of this. I, I've been in ministry 20 some years now. And in that time, I've met a number of individuals and in talking about salvation and forgiveness in Jesus Christ and what it means to be made new, to become a new creation. People who have told me, well, God can't forgive me for what I've done. I mean, you don't know my sins and, and I've committed the unpardonable sin. And so I'll ask people, well, what do you mean by the unpardonable sin? Because in their mind, they've committed a sin so bad that that sin won't be forgiven. And the Bible does actually speak of an unpardonable sin. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said that the unpardonable sin is attributing the work of God to Satan. Jesus had performed a miracle, and the religious leaders looked and said, oh, it's not by God's power that he performed this power. It's by the power of Satan that he performed this power, and Jesus, in response to that comment, notes that any sin can be forgiven except the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit by attributing the power of the Holy Spirit to the work or the power of Satan. Basically, God had given these individuals and God gives individuals over to continue in their cold, calloused hearts. Because basically, they have called what was good evil. Jesus was in their midst, performed a miracle, and they said, oh, that's Satan doing that work. And so they called good evil, and Jesus said that that sin would not be be forgiven. He calls it the unpardonable sin of, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and so when I ask people well what sin have you committed they so often will tell me through tears and with great sorrow in their lives and great guilt and great shame and they will share about their sinfulness and and make no mistakes about it there have been ungodly sinful behaviors on their part but I always look to those individuals because so very often there's just such sorrow and grief and guilt and shame on their part very often tears accompany that and I tell them The fact that you are saddened by your sin, that you are grieved over this wrong that you've committed is a true indicator that you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Because your heart isn't cold and callous and beyond conviction or beyond feeling the the weight and the guilt and the shame of your sin. You see, as we're convicted of sin, how do we respond to that? Do we bear the fruit of repentance? Because those who are truly in Jesus Christ, who are, who are connected to the true vine and abide in him, when we are convicted of sin, it grieves us. We are broken and we are sorrowful over that sin. But if we're convicted of sin and we excuse or we justify or we rationalize that sin in some way and we refuse to repent of it to turn away, That may be an indicator that we're not really and truly in the true vine because we're not grieved and sorrowful for our sin. Because those who are truly saved don't look for excuses to sin, nor do they excuse the sins they commit. Those who are truly saved and connected to the true vine look for ways not to sin And when a true believer does sin, he or she is sorry. And they will repent of that sin. They'll be forgiven of that sin. They won't continue in that sin. Jesus said, now you are my disciples if you continue in my word. So continuing in Jesus' word doesn't make us his disciples. It validates, it confirms our discipleship, our true salvation in him. Now, we need to nail down, and you need to nail down in your heart and your spirits what I said at the beginning of the message, how important and how personal this is to understand your standing in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. And and I share this message as we come to John 15 and we look at these other verses, not to create uncertainty in people's lives so that there's doubt about salvation as we say, wow, is there spiritual fruit or not spiritual fruit? The whole issue here isn't that we would live with uncertainty. It's that we would be certain that we would be sure and secure and know that we're in Jesus Christ so that we can continue in him. We can grow in him. We can abide in him and produce fruit for his kingdom. So often we can spend, I've known individuals who have spent so much time debating and worrying and wondering about whether or not they're truly saved, that they're not bearing fruit for Christ and his kingdom because they're so worried about whether or not their salvation is true and right to begin with. Jesus doesn't want us to have this fear. He wants us to have peace. So he's talking to his disciples about having peace in him, knowing they're in him so they can go and bear fruit. It's like a person running a race who spends so much time worrying about what they look like and if they have the right equipment. Do I have the right shoes? I got to get the right running shorts. I got to get the headband. And I, you know, you spend so much time. Do I have all of the right stuff? Can I get me a GPS thing? What time do I want to run? They study and they work so much on having the right stuff for running that you know what they never do? They never run. And guess what? If you don't run, you don't get the benefit of running. You know, you can die and they can wheel you out, you know, on your way to the funeral home and come in and say, wow, look at all of his running stuff. He was a big runner. His wife says, nope, he never left the house. What good is that? That you'd spend that much time worrying about the beginning stages that you never get into it. And that's, that's, the, that's the instance with salvation. I don't want this uncertainty about are we saved or not saved. Yes, let's know and let's ask God to evaluate and assess. And if we're truly saved, then we know that we're saved and we ask God, Lord, help prune things in my life that aren't bearing fruit for you. But, Lord, if it's not true, if it's not genuine, I want to make that right. I want to know because I want to produce fruit for you and your kingdom. And here's the thing. Jesus calls us to himself to abide in him so that he can do that pruning So he can produce that fruit. I'm giving you a little, you know, a head look here at what's going on. But Jesus is going to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. If we're not connected to him, we will not produce fruit in our lives. He wants us to be connected to him. Why does he want us to be connected to him? So that we produce fruit of the gospel in our lives, the fruit of the spirit, these things that we've looked at, but also so that we produce fruit for the gospel that we share with other people, that we live our lives in such a way that people can come to know Christ as well. So our response time is, is very simple, but it's very personal this morning. Are you connected to the true vine? If you've given your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, believe that his death was for your sins on the cross of Calvary to where you admit your sins, you turn from those sins and receive Christ as your savior so you can be forgiven so the Holy Spirit lives and dwell within you and connects you to Jesus who is the true vine. If you're not connected to that vine today, please come and speak to a pastor as during our response time so we can share with you how you can know and be certain that you are in Jesus Christ so you can be in him so you can bear fruit for him and for his kingdom. But secondly, this morning, just to say to believers, are you producing the fruit that Jesus Christ desires of you in your life? And I would hope and pray that most of us would say, well, I've got some room for growth. I've got some room for maturity, for, for improvement, for producing more fruit. And, and if that's the case and that's our response and we recognize that and we, we surrender and submit ourselves to Christ, then the question becomes, Lord, what is it? What would you have me do Next. What more would you have me to do to produce more fruit for you and your kingdom? Next week we pick up and we talk about pruning. But know and understand that Jesus wants to prune things, to remove things from our lives so we will bear more fruit for him, for his kingdom, and for the gospel. And so your time of response this morning, believer, is to say, Lord, what is it within me that I need to surrender, to give up, to let you cut off and remove from my life so that I more fully reflect and exemplify your son, Jesus Christ, in my life? Would you join me in prayer?